0: Well, thank you all for uh, for having me here. This is this is fun to have a, a simple little conversation with you. But for those who don't know, for those who don't know my, my backstory, I was going to show. You, it's like a 60-second marketing clip that shows how our our band in the last year and a half we started working on a on a record called Americana. But it was really inspired by our collaboration with a great artist named Ruben Blades. Ruben Blades is a legendary, iconic musician who at the Latin Grammys in 2017 said he was listening to this little band from Kansas, which is what everybody describes Kansas City, who's never been here, um, that he liked very much, called Making Movies. He wanted to collaborate with us. And when we started to talk about what what we would collaborate on, he had an idea of of creating this song based around kind of our lyrics and our message. And the song is called No Te Calles, which in Spanish means don't allow yourself to be silenced and that be ended up becoming the mantra for the band or maybe he he encapsulated a lot of the work that we were already doing and created almost like our mission statement in a song if that if that was the the scenario well that song went on to be the first single on his new album Paraiso Road Gang which is nominated for Latin Grammy Album of the Year so when if you watch the Latin Grammy telecast when they say and these the Latin Grammy Album of the Year Paraiso Road Gang they're going to play a video that We shot in New York with Ruben of a Making Movies song featuring Ruben Blades, which is the first track on his compilation. So for the first time, we're a Latin Grammy-nominated artist participating on this album. And and the world is starting to pay attention to the work that we're doing as a band. But all that work began really humbly and really simply um, here in Kansas City, trying to find a way to express our identity as bicultural people through our music. And within that, a couple years in, we, we knew that we, though, though we came from immigrant families and didn't have a lot of resources, we still had more than, than many others. For example, the way that my family moved to the U.S., I was able to have access to citizenship. And my parents did the paperwork, and over the course of some years, I was a naturalized U.S. citizen. But that was by no merit of my own doing. I didn't earn that. My brother was born in the same hospital in Santiago, Panama, and by no merit of his own doing, the law had changed. And he was able to be born a U.S. citizen, because my dad is a U.S. citizen. So we both could play in the same bathtub, but we didn't have the rights to be in the same nation. And so for me, it's always been incredibly simple to remember that the laws around a human being's legality to be somewhere have nothing to do with merit. I understand that we have to make systems in the world. Just like there has to be a system for where we bust the food that we're putting here, because if we just all bust it in unique locations, and you know, we'd have a nightmare, right? So, so we have to create systems. But when these systems aren't are no longer serving us as human beings, we have to look at the system and say, why did why is it broken and how do we fix it? We made it up, and so that was always like knowledge that I knew intrinsically because because of my childhood. And we moved to the US, and, and I'm not going to, I think Israel will probably do much better job of going rattling off the, the kind of disturbing facts about our, our immigration policies. Um, I'll touch on a few of them, but well, you can do some pretty quick Google research. If you start, you, you know, Google like the US fruit company and try to figure out why are the Central American governments so messed up? Oh, because US presidents, under the guise of stomping out communism, inflicted colonialism over Latin American countries so that they could put people in power to enrich people who were supporting them. It's not rocket science. It's not even news anymore. It's just is what happened. You can Wikipedia it. You don't have to go to some weird website. Wikipedia, like, oh, this is what happened. They They put this guy to power so a bunch of people could make a bunch of money. Now the country is destabilized. And now, when those people are seeking asylum in the U.S., they're being hit again with another layer of injustice. So those issues are very close to my heart, and, um, and I believe that there's, there's a power in just taking action. And that's all that we did as a, as a band. Eight years ago, we started a music camp, and I saw that there was this, uh, this like, afternoon arts program that the Matty Rhodes Center was doing, and I resonated with some of these kids, because I remember being a six-year-old moving to the US and not speaking English. And after seeing them, I said, hey, could we do something musical? And the director said yes. So we started this music camp after having experienced that these kids were growing up so disconnected. They live just a few miles away from here, but they grow up completely disconnected from the community. And the idea, when I brought a guitar, the idea of learning music was like two steps beyond what they they first needed to, to understand. They first need to understand it's okay for them to learn music, and it's acceptable for them to want to express their feelings. Then the second layer is, do I want to play an instrument or sing or whatever? Like, like there was, like, a couple layers before that. So we started doing this music camp, and all this work has grown through that. So I think that there's a huge power. If I was to, like, give give you all a summary of everything I want to say is just take action now with whatever you can do. And you'll figure out what you can do the next time with whatever resources you have then. I always thought that I needed to be highly successful to take to to implement any kind of change or affect any anyone and we realized you know eight years ago and we probably couldn't sell out a phone booth but we were able to help out these kids right so I think before I, I talk too much too much more like I, I do want. we're doing a project that we're going to release in, in uh, either December or January but we're putting it together now and it's kind of an awareness campaign we're using one of our songs that that deals with these issues the song's called Como Perdonar which reflects on how do we forgive how do we forgive ourselves, you know, for participating or being complicit to these things? How does someone in those situations forgive themselves for the, whatever tragedy they might have inflicted upon their family? There are some pretty troubling facts about the policies the U.S. government has inflicted. Since 1994, the U.S. government has implemented policies to kill migrants and inflict su- suffering on the world's most vulnerable people. They call it prevention by deterrence, but in practice, it's prevention by death. They realized that if they could, the most cost-effective way to deter people from trying to get into the U.S. was to funnel them into the most dangerous part of the desert as they're trying to cross the border. Um, So they fortified the cities where people were getting in before, made it very difficult to inspire people to walk through these treacherous places. And with the idea of prevention by deterrence, how do you deter someone from doing it? Well, if my uncle died, I probably won't do that. But the reality is that the numbers haven't changed. You know, people, need, people are in such need of that level of escape of, or of new opportunity that they're willing to take those risks. So I think that that shows us a lot about the gravity of the situation. And, and I think that there's there's, like, um, a, a, there's a lot of seriousness to all this. But there is, there is a beauty, I think. And, and I'm lucky to have music as a tool to connect to that beauty. So I'm going to play a little music for you all, but we're going to do a little exercise before I do that. So, are you with me to do something a little collaborative? Yeah! All right. All right. <laughs> Who has a good sense of tempo here in the room? <laughs> Nobody volunteered. Or it... Okay. All right. You're going to you're going to help. You don't have to move or anything, but you help us keep the tribe on tempo because if this it gets if it gets too fast, it'll get out of hand. But there's there's a rhythm called the clave, and the clave it's the nickname of it is or the transla- one translation would be the key. That's the same word for like a key code. Um, but it's a rhythm that people describe as an Afro-Cuban rhythm, but an Afro-Cuban rhythm is just really uh, a rhythm that the slaves brought to Cuba through the slave trade and that then, you know, became popular in Cuba. So really this is an African rhythm. It goes like this. You guys stay focused with that. <laughs> Jelly Roll Morton in New Orleans. He said you can't play the blues without the background of this rhythm. He said you need the Spanish tinge, Which he means that
1: rhythm he learned from those Cuban guys.
0: Stay steady. that same story. The narrative of music is so connected. Oh, the narrative of all of us is so connected. Because humans make music. It then make itself. And so when I, I, I use music for me as a portal to understand pieces of myself. When I, when I connected that and I thought about Kansas City Jazz, all of a sudden I didn't feel so different from the musicians playing jazz in Kansas City. I'm just playing my own version of Kansas City Jazz. Or well, they're playing their own version of Latin music. Depends on how you look at it. All right, with that in mind, this is a song I did not write, but a friend Ruben passed it to us. He said, I wrote this song 30 years ago with Lou Reed. Maybe y'all could do something with it, but I want you all to check out the lyrics of what he's talking about. I get swept away in the moment. I forget how how much time has passed. But one thing that we continue to discover, and it's not something that we understood at the beginning of this journey when we started doing the music programming. It's something that it's been more reflective than that. It's been like, as I see the change in these young people through music, I started to want to understand why. Why does music do this? And, and one of the reasons why is I think we, from what I was just showing you, I was unlocking the DNA of, of a rhythm and you can see it inside of it you're like, oh, that's an African rhythm. That connects to all of us for some reason. We all feel connected to that. Oh, maybe because one of the first ways we ever communicated was through drum music making, through our tribal like villages. Once, When human beings were 100,000 years ago in Africa and starting to create little societies, we learn how to communicate with drum language. Perhaps that rhythm is so ancient that we all have an ancestor that it tickles, and it's like, oh, I danced to that a long time ago. Oh my god. You know, and we're realizing now that, that our DNA passes down so much information. Just like you, uh, you'll, you'll have a, a young person that you know, never met great aunt so-and-so who loved apple pie, and then you have the, the niece who they were never connected in life, like, you love apple pie just the way your great aunt did or you love to dance to this just the way you're somebody who you never met it's, well we're we're inheriting all this we're inheriting the good and the bad we're inheriting the trauma that has happened in our communities and that's not there's not one race that has is like we kind of we're we're lucky there's no monopoly on trauma we we all have gotten to participate in it on some in some angle and so i i get on these really like nerdy uh, YouTube binges. YouTube research, I, I like to call it research. And I was watching like this esoteric um, his, you know, 90s history channel documentary about Neanderthals. Or maybe, it was only, maybe it was like 10 years old or something. And look, the, the production looked like it should have been from the 90s. <laughs> and at the end of this thing, so it's talking about human beings, they, they, they migrate out of Africa 40,000 years ago, and they encounter Neanderthals for the first time in uh, what would now be Europe. And we're trying to figure out why. Where did Neanderthals go? What happened? And it turns out that that we kind of swallowed them up into the human race. So most of us have a little bit of Neanderthal DNA in us. And the big question is why? Why did we succeed and and they not? You know, um, reproductively at least. You know, we succeeded more than they did. And at the end of this documentary, this anthropologist is talking about a flute that they found in this cave that Neanderthals used to be in, but then Homo sapiens took over. And they found this bone flute. It plays the pentatonic scale, and it's the oldest instrument that, as far as we know. The drum, drums wouldn't have lasted 40,000 years, but this bone flute did, and they figured out how they could recreate it. And this anthropology says, the anthropologist at the end of this documentary goes, so we think that this flute might be the reason why we're humans, not Neanderthals, because this gave us the ability to communicate emotion to one another. And I was like, this is amazing. This was not a music documentary. That is not a musician. Like when a musician tells you that music in, is important, it has like a certain amount of weight. This is just some scientist talking about Neanderthals. <laughs> and it blew my mind. And so I'm going to read to you all this, this little uh, blurb about it. This is from, the, from National Geographic. So the vulture bone flute discovered in, Europe, in a European cave is likely the world's most oldest recognizable musical inf- instrument and pushes back humanity's musical roots, a new study say. Found with fragments of mammoth ivory flutes, the 40,000-year-old artifact also adds evidence that music may have given the first European modern humans a strategic advantage over Neanderthals. So I'm going to skip to the end of it. It talks about how they made it with only stone tools. But the article ends with music as a weapon. Can I say, like, art as protest for this series? This is National Geographic. Again, not activist stuff, not, not music stuff, just science stuff. Music as a weapon, question mark. Music may have been one of the cultural accomplishments that gave the first European modern human settlers an advantage over the now extinct Neanderthal human cousins, according to the team. The ancient flutes are evidence for an early musical tradi- tradition that likely helped modern humans communicate and form tighter social bonds, the researchers argue. And so when you're thinking about that, it's, it's really amazing. And it's also amazing to think that we're now doing research. We, we, we think we are being driven so much by our analytical brain, right? The part where language comes from. But if we were so driven by that, then how do we have addictions in the world? How are there people who are strung out on opioids? If our analytical brain tells you, I'm not going to do that. I'm done. That's just ruining my life. Something propels you to do it. A really weird analogy for this, but it's a true thing. In, in a few indigenous cultures, you'll find that some, some people like to eat clay or dirt. And then if they, they do the research, well, why do these people like to eat clay or dirt? they're propelled to, it seems, research says, because they have a deficiency in certain minerals in that dirt. And so that part of the population that has those deficiencies is propelled to eat dirt. That means that your brain, some subconscious part of it, is steering your ship a lot more than what you'd like to give it credit for. And music, because it predates language and overcomes language barriers, touches that limbic part of the brain. So much so that they're doing research now on using music to impact opioid addiction, right? And as we, as we look at, at this, there's also um, any, like, when, when people do research, this is research that I've had to do as we expanded the program. We had a one-week music camp. We realized we could do more and needed to do more. We started a not-for-profit. So then I've been educating myself on why this stuff works. I've seen it. I've seen a young person transform over years of having exposure to music education, to be able to raise their own voice. Well, what is happening inside that young person? And now I understand it more clearly, and not as, I'm not a scientist, but the research makes sense to me to what I've seen firsthand. When you've undergone trauma as a young person, your brain develops differently. We don't understand exactly how, but the house your brain builds doesn't function quite right inside the limbic system. And that's the limbic system is the part that touches on fight or flight. It's the part that gives you, when, when you have a decision and you go, I don't know how I knew that that was the right call, it was a gut feeling. I just felt it. I didn't, it's because you don't have a word to describe that because it came from a part of your brain that doesn't handle language. And the gut feeling is because your limbic system and your fight or flight nerve actually lives in your gut. So when, when, when you're a young person, you have a lot of trauma in your life, your brain develops in a way where it doesn't handle those, those triggers effectively and you end up with a dopamine deficiency and you end up with an increased like cortisol, Uh, increased like, like I just realized that I need to pull out my my book to remember this, this word, but the, uh, the, your, your cortisol stress hormone is, is on all the time. And as your brain feels a bit on fire through that, you end up looking for ways to alleviate that fire. Just like those people looked for dirt to eat. They don't know why. Same with a young person who's been through trauma my cortisol is messing up all my systems and i need to find something to fix it and that's why drug addiction unhealthy sexual behavior thats why all those things are so attractive for someone with trauma now they have a test it's like a simple test where you can measure the amount of trauma someone's had their likelihood to have those kind of issues depression all these things though they call it behavioral allostasis is when Your body knows what you are needing. And it's not that you, like, if you were to stumble upon a drug, then you realize, oh, I feel human again. I I have the dopamine I once lacked. I have relief from the stress. It's more powerful than that. It's that you are driven to find it. And that's what the research is now saying. Now you're thinking, well, this conversation is about immigration. Why did you go down this rabbit hole of of, um, trauma, stress, and the way music impacts it? Because for me, music is this language that allows us to talk to one another. And it allowed me to say, I'm not different than the Kansas City Jazz musician, though I'm Panamanian, but with an Alabama grandmother and a Chinese great-grandfather. There's something that connects us all. But now I'm also realizing that music is a tool to battle our, and, and confront our own traumas and our own brain chemi- chemistry deficiencies. And when you look at today's climate, the rhetoric that's coming from political pulpits, when you look at the heightened racism and violence, the, um, when there's like people gunned down at a Walmart at El Paso with a manifesto because, of their, because they're immigrants, when you talk to kids who are aware that maybe somebody in their family doesn't have documentation, and they've seen the video go online of, of a parent being pulled out of a car, being abused, put to the ground, we're creating a generation of young people that are going through a lot of trauma. And we're, as a society, going to have to face that. And I believe that music is a key component to helping that. Um, I want to try, try something with you all. We'll try one more thing. So the last thing I want to do is the song, No Te Calles, res- speaks to having us all raise our voices. So we're going to just sing a note together. But we're going to sing it with intention of whatever you want to see different in the world. And I think you're going to realize that the second that we do that, you are going to get the same rush of dopamine that you would get from drinking a glass of water or uh, you know, going on a jog and hitting that like runner's high. You're going to feel a bit of that. And I want us to all kind of be cognizant of this, all right? So I'm going to play the chorus of the song. Start thinking about your intention. The note is this. Ah. Uh, you guys want to practice? Ah. Uh, nice. All right, I'm going to play a little bit of the song and then on the count of four we'll all sing that together but with intention. Alright, everybody ready? Deep breath. Sing the note. Actually, no. Let's just let's just yell a note at the top of our lungs, right? and we'll all feel a little better.
2: try to follow that (laughs) well hello my name is Israel Alejandro Garcia Garcia it's always for me a pleasure to share the mic with Enrique we've been lucky enough to grow up here in Kansas City as artists and realizing that for him as a performing artist and for me as a visual artist um, our paths are always the same and always parallel I think we concentrate in education, and not only our own education, but educating our community and the population at large, that we have experiences to share, and we could only share those honestly through the medium we know best. For me is visual art, and for Enrique is um, performing art and music, and it's always great when both of our paths cross and meet up. So. Thank you, Enrique, for what you do. So that's me. I think in order to understand this journey more than any journey, this is really how my history took a full, came full circle. Touched about it a little bit in the bio. My family and I immigrated through the Tijuana-San Diego border when I was about seven. I don't know the details. My mom, even until now, as we talked tra- about trauma, uh, my mom, even till this day, won't talk about it, um, to a point where we're not even sure or understand our own journey. It's that specific journey. I, we remember glimpses, but we don't know what those glimpses are, whether it's my seven-year-old embellishing that memory or if it was actual memory that we had. And I say we because it was myself and my two brothers um, that took this journey one day um, in about 84. Um, And for us, I think it was very interesting what we could remember. It was that our environment changed, not necessarily that we happened to have our parents and my brothers with us, but we just realized that when we were surrounded by handmade toys, now we were surrounded by Transformers. And so, so that was my first introduction to the US and to realizing that we were no longer home. And their home is where the family is ultimately. So I think for me and my journey, I I began very early on to thank my parents. I think as we take notice of what's happening currently with the asylum seekers and those that are taking that journey and began to judge those parents that are traveling with their children. I always like to thank my parents first and foremost, for taking that journey with us because I wouldn't be here otherwise. And I think we can't judge anybody unless we've, we've walked in their shoes. And I think for anybody that has any judgment about these parents and their journey and why they're taking their journey with their children, they, we are. It's a survival mechanism, and we are trying to survive. We were trying then, and I am sure that they are trying now and I will not be the one judging them for wanting a better life for themselves and for their children, so. So I think I always wanna thank my parents for having the strength to take that journey with three kids. Myself at seven, my brother at eight, and my younger brother at two. For us, it was the best case scenario. Um, I like to think of it that way. My mom happened to migrate to California, Southern California where she quickly began her work as a migrant farm worker. So by that point, middle of 84, the administration was different and there was a track for her to work towards her residency. So she worked the farm, the land, and she was able to migrate and immigrate and a path through citizenship through that way. Um, There were amnesties at that time that were implemented and she was one of the beneficiaries of that. So we were already in the US and for us, it took that opportunity to begin our process. Um, I say we were probably in one of the best case scenarios because we were already in the US when our process began. Back, not until there were multiple stories of fraud along those 30 years. So for me, it wasn't until 2018 where, when I became a US citizen. And we are talking, by that point, 30-plus years of failed filing our documents, um, fraud through not-for-profits, churches, so on and so forth. So it was many, many years of fraud, many, many years of my parents not um, mastering the language and having fear of not knowing what the process was. And I think as we talk about trauma, um, for me, and I think for me it took 30, plus years to have a sense of my status. And it's going to end all those 30 years was full of trauma because there was a history of not understanding our own immigrant history. And because of that, there was a line of us living in the shadows. So we're trying to understand what we could do. Um, For us, it didn't really hit home until we were out of high school. And we began. It was time for us to have our first job. Then, when we found out that we weren't able to, um, because we didn't have the status or the documentation that allowed us to do so. So for me, it was that. And I think I, I do speak about that specific trauma um, that is going to take. It took us thirty. Took me thirty years to get to this point, and it's going to take me that long to get over that childhood trauma or that trauma of living in the shadows for such a long time. So for me, I think this became full circle and what it basically is, I took it upon myself to research the border. I started in Brownsville, Texas in the fall of 2018 and ended up in San Diego. So I traveled the whole 2,000 miles of the US-Mexico border. Um, Even though that was the border that I crossed, I wanted to make sure, as a visual artist that would be continuously speaking about the border and border issues, that I was able to do that firsthand, that I was interacting with the communities, that I was interacting with the community, the population on both sides of the um, U.S.-Mexico border. So for me, it was the ability to Um, create an experience or a traveling exhibit that would communicate that experience, communicate what is going on at the U.S.-Mexico border and what we in the Midwest, in some cases, have this disconnect. You know, the the news are so far apart. The border is so far away. And the only information we have are those sound bites. That is all we have. And unless you're there, you really don't know what that reality is. Um, So for me, it was that I own a contemporary art gallery in the crossroads. Ultimately, it's all Latin American narratives. And I wanted to make sure that I served my community first, but also realized that even with that brick and mortar, I wasn't the demographic that I was hoping to reach from the get-go wasn't coming to me. For multiple reasons, for the fact that I was in the crossroads, for the fact that the crossroads had already alienated its neighboring communities. So uh, the Hispanic Latino community to the west and then the African American community to the east. So, and that's a whole other conversation um, to have. But I wanted to make sure that I had, that I could exist in the middle of where the the art world, um, at least Kansas City's art scene existed. Um, And then we had a place, we had a safe place for um, young, Latino artists to be able to express themselves and be able to have a place where they could come feel safe regardless of their status so I think for me it was really the fact that I knew that I could make a difference and how to do that and I speak to what I'm doing now as being able to provide a narrative in what I consider art deserts there are the Far East the far west and the north and the south where the Nelsons the campers aren't um, spending any time. So for me, it was really converting a 40-foot shipping container into an immigrant experience. So through this research that took two months, I collected um, objects through migrant trails. So I would start at the US-Mexico border and then easily work my way up north through these migrant trails and began to collect items that the migrants were leaving behind. So these were survival whatever elements they um, needed for survive to survive. So rappers, food, experiences. I was also taking video and audio. And really that would just give me give myself and the audience a glimpse of what the existence at the US Mexican border was. So I think it's through these images that I realized that the US is really full of experiences and dynamics and also an open border system. So there are many states where there are long stretches of no border fence and all we have is as you see there that's on the left-hand side is the u.s mexico marker so one foot is on the u.s side and the other foot is on the mexican side so i think it's that this community in new mexico that really showed where there really wasn't a emergency as we were hearing you know there's two communities that existed in an open border and did whatever they did on a daily basis. You know, the Mexican side, they were barbecuing, and on the U.S. side, we're actually separated by huge huge stretches of desert. So on the Mexican end, they're actually living up to the border, and on the U.S. end, we have miles and miles upon miles of uh, buffer zone. And as Enrique mentioned, it's where they're ultimately being funneled for deterrence, which equals death. So for me, this is really what, um, what I came back to, and these are the objects that I was able to bring back from the U.S.-Mexico border. During this time in November It's also when the U.S. government began to put the serpentine fence at the border. If you guys saw the news of that, that was happening. We had Kansas City forces being deployed to there as well. So I think it's really talking about how complicit we can be and how much light we could shed on what's actually happening and what's actually happening here at home as well. So here at home, we have a detention center. We also have immigration court that's happening every day where these the lives of these children are being dictated to and being chosen for. So I think it's really talking about that, but I really wanted this exhibition to not only that, but also tie it into Kansas City's immigrant history. So by doing this, I wanted to make sure that we speak to the contemporary issue, but also bring it back to what Kansas City's immigrant history has been. And by taking that narrative into those communities, so I've dove into each community's archive and really brought it back, so through their photography archives. And Kansas City has, both Kansas City, Kansas, and Missouri has a huge history since the mid, 1850s of immigrant communities coming through both of our cities. What brought them first here was the railroad, and then shortly after that was the stockyards. So we have a huge history, and what I also wanted to do is ensure that we had a place as people of color, as immigrants, in Kansas City. So when a younger community is being told to go back home, is this is where home is and I wanted to make sure that they were aware that the cities they lived in, the streets they walked, has also been immigrant cities as well. So I think for me, it was really the ability to do it, but it was as much a for the people as it was for myself as well. I needed to make sure that, for me, that experience came full circle, and that I was able to tried to heal from my own experience and what i had lived through which is one of the reasons why i started in the far east in brownsville and ultimately ended in the tijuana san diego san diego point of entry and it wasn't until i arrived at san diego where i really found my place it was during In November where you guys might remember the image it was in the LA River and the asylum seekers were being gassed and you could see a mother and a daughter being pulled away as she's being gassed so that happened on a Sunday and I arrived on a Monday so it wasn't until I hit that community and at that point that I felt that I need to put my research down there was so much need There were so many people not being assisted. Everybody was looking at the bigger picture, but nobody was looking at the small things to do. So the first thing I did, thanks to Facebook and that platform, I went to bed. I wrote a quick post letting my community know that I was in San Diego at the asylum-seeking encampments and that I needed some funds and that i had boots on the ground and they would be able to see how their money was being spent i went to bed didn't think anybody was going to come back and when i did and i woke up i had four thousand dollars through my network and it's all from here in kent city so i think i wanted to make sure so i spent two weeks doing the very basic things that both the US or the Mexican government wasn't providing. Um, As simple as tarp. So I would just buy large rolls of plastic. The San Diego was rained for two weeks straight, and they had no means of covering themselves. So that was the first purchase. Shortly after that, they wanted to keep their place clean. So we went ahead and bought big stock of Clorox, broom, mop, buckets, so they could. Also, keep their area clean. So, I think one of the biggest eye openers in that scenario was that everything at the moment coming out of all of the new networks was these dirty people. They're not appreciating what's being given to them. They were littering, throwing everything away. And how everything was being skewed while I was there and while I was seeing what was actually going on. So, I did. Um, create a Facebook page, fundraiser, and I just recorded live videos. So I figured that was be, that would be the only way that I could actually communicate an unedited version of what's actually going on. So this is the installation. Luckily enough, I came back home and I began to talk about this body of work and this scenario. But until then, on, while I was working on the 40-foot shipping container, I wanted to make sure that this body of material and these objects didn't just sit in storage. And I wanted to get it in front of people. And luckily enough, mid-continent public library system are the first ones that wanted to partner up with me. So they felt the value of their patrons and this narrative to the community of color that they were already having. And they wanted something that would not only educate that community but because they're also largely in suburban Kansas City that would educate the white population as well as to the realities of the narrative. So these these are the installations. Both, it started, first installation, this is at the uh, Midwest Genealogy Center and in Independence. So these are just the objects that are being installed at that branch. Previously to this one, it was at Woodneath Library Center and then from there it's going to go into Platte City so and these are objects these are anywhere from backpacks hats water jugs food wrappers anything electrolytes so really anything that they needed at the time so there's two things that happen to a migrant if they happen to make it to the U.S. Um, one is that they're able to make it through and somehow make it to a um, small town or small city or somewhere where they could kind of regroup, they will either pass away from the elements, dehydration, or blunt force trauma or shot in the head. So can, um, in Arizona, there's a huge database where 50% are actually blunt force trauma. So they're either vigil- vigilantes, border patrol, that are either forcing them, killing them, or shooting them in the head ultimately. So I think that when we think of what it takes for them to get to this point and what it took for me to get to this point is really that, that experience. So I really wanted to be able to uh, translate that experience through these objects and through these ephemera, that will also explain to you a little bit of it. I wanted to make sure that there are voices that needed to be heard, that there was a curated experience. I wanted to make sure that it wasn't a forceful experience, that it was a welcoming experience, that it wasn't me trying to change uh, political minds, that it was me just presenting the evidence and the audience to be able to walk away with an experience that they would be able to take home and really think about it. So it was really more of food for thought. And for me, it was more than anything, it was really the connection to my own community. I realized that this these elements became the tool to begin the conversation for those going through trauma. I began to exhibit the first time i exhibited was as you see there on the left and what you see is basically me just unpacking so this is two months of acquiring material and i just sat in my gallery put a tarp down and really just unpacked so these are four states that i had to unpack systematically and it actually exhibited this way for about four months in that four month system There were multiple, multiple people that had either needed to stop me, needed to hug me because they understood my experience or needed to hug me because they needed their experience to be heard. There are people that came up to me bawling or walked away bawling. There are people that weren't even able to come into the room because of what those elements and what those elements, those memories based on those elements. Um, came to. So I think that there's a lot of healing to be done, and we've all interacted with somebody dealing with that trauma, indirectly or directly. We know all know of someone. So I think it's really, for me, this is kind of where my work has began. For me, this is it, it was a very selfish project because I knew it was healing for me. but because my work has always been autobiographical, I know how it affects those that have gone through that same trauma and I know which is why I make it public and which is why I travel it, which is why my work is public work. I don't produce necessarily beautiful things or beautiful pieces um, that can be hung in a living room. I produce larger scale bodies of work that are meant to affect the general public and meant to inform or educate the general public and ensure that my experience becomes a part of their experience. Yeah, so the the actual hiking took two months. This project had been in the works for five years. So it was both grant writing. One was actually becoming a US citizen that I knew that I couldn't actually be at the border 24-7 in front of Border Patrol being kicked out. Ultimately, my rights being abused and a situation as a US permanent resident. I needed to be a US citizen. Very early on, I realized that I could have just been another brown body that could disappear. There are big spans of desert where that's just the case, and they didn't matter. Um, Very early on, I was in McAllen, Texas, where I realized that I had to get my press pass, that I had to get that extra layer of protection, because at least they wouldn't go one way or the other. One of the things that was told to me by the newspaper that I got the press restaurant from it, is that it could help you or it could hurt you they're actually very aggressive towards the press but also it actually did help me and protect me so it, these are long bodies of work for myself i produce one body of work about a year um, with multiple years of research Yeah, there was a lot of those things, a lot of those things. I think during that time, because the military action were just happening, Border Patrol and the military at the same time, they actually didn't want them to be documented in the same picture. So I happened to do so and very quickly rushed out of that area. Um, Just having them speak as they were talking to points of entry and pointing. And I think they were just planning out how they were going to go about installing this barbed wire. And very quickly, I was rushed out. And then systematically, for the next couple of days, I was just harassed. Luckily enough, like I said, I think because my journey was a lot longer, I was able to kind of hold my tongue, just let it go, let it roll off my back, and just continue my journey. So, so yeah, there was a lot of instances like that. I did always make it a point, though, in my case, to, to always give back. I knew that even though I was taking these elements that I would always go into a not-for-profit and give my time, volunteer my time in each point of entry and each community that I was in because I felt that I was taking information and I wanted to make sure that I was giving back to that same community.
0: It's not, uh, opposition in what way? It can be culturally, um, as a bi-cultural individual yeah, it's identity. all the time. Um, so the, I remember when we the the first album that we got to make was C Berlin of Los Lobos producing, which I have na- naively thought this is it, it's my golden ticket. Like I got a musical legend producing our music, we're gonna make it. Um, but it 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 obviously helped, but it was a long road and. We realized we were getting a lot of doors shut upon us if there was any Spanish language in our in the bio or the marketing materials. So we, we did a strategy that worked. It was this band called Making Movies has a song called Pendulum Swings, and some of our music is in English. And if we removed anything that sounded Spanish, even our own names, then we wouldn't get rejections as quickly. And that right. nope, that ain't right. And, and then um, fast forward to today, our booking agent He's like, yeah. He's like, I think some some curators are still not open-minded enough. We need you to do that, r- make a video for the Everybody Wants to Rule the World cover, and let's write a, a same story. Let's write a marketing piece for you all that doesn't talk at all about your the Spanish collaborators and all that because that just scares these curators. Like, oh, it doesn't work for my audience. Um, we did a tour with Hooray for the Riff Raff and a promoter in Tulsa because she though she's um, she's Boricuas and she's like New Yorkeran. She's from Puerto Rico. It's, descendants but grew up in new york city and her music is more like americana music and we um the promoter just kicked and screamed to not let us on the show we don't this kind of music doesn't work at our club this kind of music doesn't we don't have that kind of music at our club you know um and but the artist that she kept us. she's like no i'm keeping them on the show What the what the hell and when we showed up the promoter he apologized he said i'm i'm I put my 12 between my legs. I'm writing your agent right now. That my apologies because you guys are fantastic. So we face all that, and that I think ties to the name of our album. Our name, our album, new album name is Americana, but like like phonetically spelled. And we have an event that we've had for five years called Making Movies Carnaval, where we um, curate Latinx artists um, and, and artists from other cultures. But it's a benefit to the what now is the not for profit. It used to be just the program we ran out of the Matty Road Center, but now we have the camp and the three-month music program but I'm rebranding it next year yes. as Americana fest because that is American music like that story of Jelly Roll Morton saying like yeah. oh you can't play American music without this well yeah this is American music um, and, and let's, let's not let's not believe a myth that it isn't because of the fact how consistently I face that well we don't do your kind of music here thank you. you're welcome thank you, thank you.